That's a song by The Cure called Burn, which along with another song called Big Empty by a group, a rock group called Stone Temple Pilots that I'm a big fan of, actually along with The Cure as well, they had two of the most uh, well-known songs on the soundtrack of the film we are going to discuss today which is the 1994 film The Crow, starring Brandon Lee, the son of none other than the legendary Bruce Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Heroes Retreat with Noel Cruz. Formerly, So Have You Seen, which I signed off... <laughs> My previous episode, I saw, I signed off with, you know, thank you for joining me on So Have You Seen, have a good night. You know, because again, I, I have a time limit on, on these episodes that I'm able to record. So, you know, a little faux pas. I, I, I love listening to, you know, like the slip ups that I make or whatever the case is. I, it's kind of funny. I hope it doesn't annoy you guys. But yeah, so um, we're going to be talking about that film for a bunch of reasons. Number one, this is Halloween weekend. Uh, even though you guys will probably be hearing this on, on the Monday that follows, November 1st. But in essence, this was Halloween weekend. So I hope you guys had a great Halloween, a safe Halloween. Lots of people out in the city. It was kind of good to see, you know, given uh, the lack of activities due to the pandemic in 2020. You know, a lot of... I love seeing people get creative with costumes, man. And it's like every year that passes... People are just getting more and more creative with stuff. This was a big year for um, the Squid Game costume, the Netflix series, the Korean uh, TV series that is super popular on Netflix right now. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it, check it out. I, I thought it was okay. It was definitely um, definitely original, for lack of better words. Um, you know, it's unfortunately to me, it, it kind of falls into a little bit of overhype like it really was good and I don't want to take anything away from Squid Game I really don't I think one of the things I enjoyed about it the most was its originality and the writing and and the whole premise of the story of you know how how dangerous it is when when you know people are competing against one another literally for their lives it's you know it's pretty crazy shit but it was very well done um but honestly, there was just a degree of just overhyped to it that I was expecting something slightly different. But again, definitely worth a watch. Um, not to give anything away, but it clearly looks like they're going to move forward with another season of Squid Game. So that was like the big costume, at least that I had seen throughout this uh, holiday season. So I hope you guys had a really good one. Another reason why I'm touching on this film for this episode of Heroes Retreat. Um, the Crow was a graphic novel um, by a gentleman named James Obar. And it's a beautiful graphic novel. Um, the art was, was kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but it had a bit of like an urban feel to it. It wasn't, you know, with all due respect to James O'Barr, it wasn't like super sophisticated, but it was beautiful, 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 beautiful artwork. It was in black and white. Um, I remember back then I used to get confused between the crow and Sandman. There's a character by DC called the Sandman. 
and they have kind of a goth look to them. So they're very easy to confuse. But when I read The Crow, when I had the graphic novel, and it was just simple and beautiful, even now a lot of the the manga comic books that are like in black and white, there's a simplicity to their cover that I guess it's just, you know, and I don't know if it's a standard, but it's something that is identifiable. Um, I remember that the cover of the graphic novel was like a matted black, and the only thing that was in color were the letters of the crow. They were in red. And then there was a picture of the lead character, whose name is Eric Draven, um, standing next to what looked like an angelic headstone. And I was super excited when I got this book. Um, unfortunately, the film is known more for the tragedy that occurred than the rightful uh, premise of the book. On the set of this film, uh, Brandon Lee was accidentally shot with a live round, uh, or at least what the story is, is that they were generally back then when they made films or something that was common up until that point, because I know that a lot of regulations came into play after the death of Brandon, Brandon Lee with this, um, with this incident was that for certain shots of a film, when, when you see a character discharge a weapon or whatever the case, sometimes it would be a live round because apparently dummy rounds or dummy cartridges don't look the same when you discharge them as compared to a live round. Um, so it just kind of boiled down to one weapon was being used throughout the film and it wasn't, I guess, cleaned out properly, like the barrel wasn't cleaned out or there was residue on the chamber that when they put in a dummy projectile, there was apparently a little bit of gunpowder of residue that was just enough that when the actor discharged the weapon that dummy projectile now became live. So it became a live piece of ammunition. And it ultimately, they shot Brandon Lee in the stomach and Brandon Lee would be rushed to an emergency room and ultimately he would meet his fate and he died. Um, and it sucks, man, because he was young, he was full of life. This looked like it was going to kind of be his own vehicle to, you know, put the spotlight on him. Um, I was a huge fan of his dad. Um, you'll be hard pressed to find, you know, anybody who's not a fan of Bruce Lee. I mean, you, you know, as, as I always like to say, you could go to like, you know, the deepest, darkest caves of Africa or, you know, the deepest, darkest caves of Mexico. And you could go, Whoa! and somebody look at you and be like, Bruce Lee, you know, it's known over the world. It's known over the world. And Bruce Lee, also died of apparently hypersensitivity to medication. Uh, and he never got to see the fame and the explosion of what his film, Enter the Dragon, would be. Uh, Bruce Lee had done TV. He had been Cato uh, in uh, the Green Hornet TV series, which was a spinoff of the Batman and, and Robin, the Batman 1966 TV show. You know, and Bruce Lee was just... <laughs> He was fucking amazing, man. I mean, Bruce Lee was so amazing, right? Now, this, this is actually real. When he did Cato in The Green Hornet, they had to tell him to slow down because his moves, his karate moves, 
He was so fast that actors couldn't react in time to a kick or to a punch because he would come millimeters to your face. That's how precise Bruce was, but it's an eye blink. So a lot of times, much of the frustration of certain directors, they'd be like, Bruce, can you slow down? Because we have to show that there's a degree of impact when you throw a kick or when you throw a punch. So he had to slow down. There's also another hilarious bit of that history of him as of Bruce Lee as Cato for for the Green Hornet show was when they did their crossover episode where the Green Hornet met Batman and Robin on the 66 TV show. In the original script, they had it that Robin, Burt Ward, the actor, was supposed to beat Cato. Obviously, that shit didn't fly with Bruce. (laughs) He's like, there is no fucking way anybody will ever believe that Robin can beat Cato. So, you know, there was rumor. I don't know how much of this is true, but apparently there was like rumors that Bruce Lee like was walking around the set like breaking tables and breaking windows that he was angry, you know, saying like, oh, nobody's going to believe that, like to scare the shit out of Burt Ward. And it worked because Burt Ward is like, yo, I don't want to do this episode. Like, I don't you know, this guy is going to kill me. But, you know, lo and behold, it it was rewritten to make it um, a draw that. Batman and the Green Hornet and and Cato and Robin fought to a draw and it's it was hilarious and something that I absolutely love from my childhood one of like one of the one of the greatest things one of the highlights of me as a kid but um yeah so that was Brandon's dad you know and ultimately it 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 just it sucks and it's terrible that Bruce would pass away so young not see just the way he would change the world with this kung fu film enter the dragon and then brandon being on on you know on the precipice of just launching into the stratosphere with this movie and he never lived to see it you know and and i asked myself that in this day and age in in the day and age of like superhero movies and marvel movies and like shang chi if you guys heard my shang chi episode i have zero doubt in my mind that Bruce Lee would have played someone in this film. Either Bruce or Brandon. Who knows? Brandon could have probably played Shang-Chi himself. He might have been a little older. Not to say that the lead actor didn't do phenomenal. But Bruce's influence is felt till this day. But given in the world that we live now with these action films and these comic book movies and all this other stuff, it begs to question, what would his contribution have been in these films? And I can only imagine... Man, it would have been insane. It would have been absolutely insane. But that being said, the film um, directed, I believe, by a gentleman named Alex Proyas came out in 1994. Now, this is a true story. Around 1993, I had gone with a couple of friends, two of my friends, to a recording of MTV's Total Request Live. Now, I'm not sure if back in 93, it was called Total Request Live. I I think it was like MTV Now or MTV, you know, it, it had some name to it. Could be Total Request Live. I don't remember. But we went to the studio because one of the one of the girlfriends of my buddies has gotten tickets. You know, we should have been in school, but we weren't. And she got tickets and we went. 
So I was there, you know. I remember standing in line. I was like, I don't know, how old was I? I was like 19, 94. I was like smoking Marlboro cigarettes, you know, being all rock and roll. And, you know, we had to wait in line and we got in. They got us into the studio audience and, you know, the producer spoke to us. They're like, guys, we have, you know, the guest of the show today is Brandon Lee. He's going to be promoting a movie called Rapid Fire, which is the film he did before The Crow. And the musical group, I think, is going to be Right Said Fred. No, these are the guys. You want to talk about the fucking 90s, man. These are the guys that did that song, I'm Too Sexy For My Shirt. These guys, all right? So I'm really dating myself here, going back over 20 years. Anyway, Brandon Lee had a very short segment. It was just quick. He walked in. I had never really seen him before. I mean, I saw him when he was a little boy. Like you would see him with his dad. And then you saw him, unfortunately, at the funeral, you know, near his dad's casket and stuff like that. But I had not seen him in all this time. And he's, you know, good looking dude. Very charming. He definitely had very much of his father's charm. Bruce Lee for for all the all the kung fu he knew and, and all of his Chinese philosophy, because he studied Chinese philosophy, I think, in UCLA. Bruce Lee was very charming. I think that was probably, I would even go as far as to say, first and foremost, he just captivated you. And then he showed you all this incredible shit that he knew, one inch punch and two finger push ups and, you know, all of this crazy Kung Fu stuff that then you were like, wow, this guy really is amazing. So Brandon definitely had that of his dad, you know, and he had a very big smile. He had a big head too, man. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be that guy, but it's like I've, I've met quite a few people in my life, given what I do as you know my day job, and just by circumstance, I've met Benicio del Toro. Also, dude looked like he had a lion's head. He just had like this, what is a mane of hair, black hair, big head, and Brandon just he was like that. He had very defining features. He had, I remember, he had high cheekbones. And when they were talking to him, he had a big smile. He had a big, like, welcoming smile. Anyway, at some point during the recording, you know, they're like, guys, if, you know, you need to use the restroom, go now because we're going to redo the set for the music scene, whatever the case. So I went to the restroom. As I walk into the restroom, Brandon Lee is washing his hands. And it's just me and him. So he was very gracious. He looked in the mirror at his reflection. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? And I was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, you know, I just looked at him and I, I felt compelled to tell him. You know, I don't like to bother celebrities or people in general, but I, I felt compelled to tell them. I said, hey, man, listen, I'm a huge fan of, of your father's work and congratulations with the movie. And I remember like he was pulling paper towels out, drying his hand. It's crazy what you remember, like what stays in your mind. And he was drying his hands and he's like, thanks a lot, man. And he's like, are you going to see the movie? I was like, yeah, I'll definitely check it out, you know. And I said, what are you doing now? Like, what's what's after this movie? He's like, I don't know. He's like, I'm in the process now of doing something based on a graphic novel. He goes, it's called The Crow. I don't know if you ever heard of it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know The Crow. It's like, a, like this gothic um, superhero thing, right? He's like, yeah, exactly. He's like, so we're working on that. So we're going to get that going. And that's about it. And I, you know, it, it was odd. I mean, I'm talking to Brandon Lee in a fucking bathroom. But he was really nice and he was very human and he was very approachable. And, you know, we were probably, uh, I, 
I would say we were of equal height, you know, and I was just, I was taken aback by how nice he was. He could have just watched, first of all, why is he using like the public area bathroom and not like the the guest bathroom or whatever the case. He was just very, very, very approachable. Really nice guy. That was that. You know, I came back, I told my friends, I'm like, yo, you never guess where I met in the bathroom. I was just talking to Brandon Lee. Of course, people made underhanded jokes or whatever the case, you know, how teenagers are. We were like 18, 19 at the time. But I, I, you know, to me, it was an experience. I was a 19-year-old kid. I had just met, quote-unquote, a celebrity and the son of, of a legitimate legend. No bullshit. So then times passed, you know, some time had passed after that. And I was working at a restaurant around where I live called Coogan's. I was a busboy there, and I had just got home. And I remember, like, the 6 o'clock news came on. And I remember the newscaster said, Brandon Lee son of legendary martial artist Bruce Lee has been shot and killed on the set of his new movie. And I was like, wait, 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 what did she say? You know, like it, the shit took me aback. I was like, wait a minute. And I remember I felt an immediate sense of sadness. Cause I, I had literally spoken to this dude. So like, I didn't really know anyone who had died like that, that I, I had kind of met inter like briefly or whatever the case and then shortly thereafter, it's like on national syndicated news that he that person was killed. So I was like, holy shit. Wow. Like I felt really sad. And I remember, you know, talking to my boys growing up, you know, my boy Eric, Alex, Alejandro. We were all, you know, like shocked by this. So we were now like the hype for this movie had really kicked in you know what i mean um the the circumstances of the death you know was he murdered he's cursed like his father and all this nonsense the media has a way of stretching shit out and you know into disproportion events you know to kind of get the viewing they need or, or whatever it is but you know a lot of disgusting comments whatever the case but it just turns out that it was a tragedy very much like what is happening right now with the actor Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin accidentally shot and killed, I think, a director photographer on the set of his movie, a movie that he was making called Rust. And he accidentally shot and killed a woman named Halina Hutchins, I believe her name is, and the director with what he thought was what they call in the business a cold gun. And I don't know what the exact circumstances were. And he discharged the weapon thinking nothing's going to happen. And he killed someone and, and wounded another. Like, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I, I don't dislike Alec Baldwin. You know, I'm, I, I like his work. I, you know, I had a chance encounter to meet him when I worked in a hotel. And that, that was a time that he was um, doing um, 30, 30 Rock, the 30 Rock. You know, he did like his fame was coming back up. You know, he had done Beetlejuice years before. And I always wanted him to be Batman, believe it or not. I remember when they were casting for Batman. I wanted Alec Baldwin to be Bruce Wayne and Batman. But I can't remember what the circumstances were. You know... This man's life will never be the same. He killed someone. Like, think about that shit. 
that's horrible, man. That's that's really fucking bad. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, that woman's husband is is now a widow. Her son is now, you know, he he lost his mom. You don't go to work ever thinking you're going to fucking kill somebody. I mean, even as a as I don't know, as as a police officer, that's not your intention. You you want to start your shift and then you want to go home. You know what I'm saying? So that's really really sad. It, it is a tragedy all the way around. And that's another kind of reason why I, I I picked this film given, you know, the circumstances of that. Um, but you know, again, my, my heart goes out to the family of that woman and, and I hope the director is okay. And honestly, well wishes to Alec Baldwin, man, because I don't even want to imagine what he's going through. But it's like the same circumstance with Brandon Lee. You know, how do you that must be horrifying. And apparently it happened in a scene where in the film, the basis of the film is that there's a couple who is very much in love, a young man and a a young woman. The girl's name is Shelly and the young man's name is Eric, Eric Draven and Shelly Webster. Brandon Lee played Eric Draven, who's like a, you know, you come to see as, as the film progresses, he was like a rock star and he's very much in love with this girl set in a gothic what appears to be detroit right first things first the production the set production of this was looking back on it now and it's a total 90s film was beautifully done there's a lot of rain it's a lot of darkness you know black is the predominant color you know this shit affected like this came out i think in may of 1994 so this affected what people were going to be as Halloween and like that whole autumn and winter of 94 into like early 95. Everybody wore black. Everybody wore leather. You know, everybody was goth because, you know, art influences life. So this set was beautifully done. It One of the reasons why this movie was an incredible success was that it was done on a budget of, I think, $23 million. And it generated close to 100, if not over 100 million dollars. So. As Eric and Shelly are very much in love, tragedy strikes when these guys break into their apartment who are who are like gangsters. For what turns out to be a head gangster who's like a slumlord because they live there and they kill them both. The gangsters rape and murder her. And they shoot Eric Draven and he falls out a window. What I had learned with this movie is that films are rarely, if ever, shot in sequential order. That means that the first day of filming, they could film the last scene of the movie, which that very rarely happens. Or they could film in the middle or wherever the director chooses, whatever time, budget and location can afford So a lot of the film had already been done. Um, Brandon Lee had had fulfilled the majority of his scenes. And I believe it was in a reshoot where he is to walk into the apartment and find his girlfriend being attacked by these guys. There's an actor who plays a character called Funboy. I believe he has like blonde hair. He's a guy who shoots up heroin in the movie. He turns around and he shoots Brandon. And I believe it was in that instance that the projectile came, you know, it was a live projectile and it killed him. 
when you look at the movie at the very beginning when when Eric Draven comes out of the ground it's clearly Brandon Lee without a doubt you see him like screaming and you know he's he's brought back from the dead now as the movie kind of progresses into him going back to the apartment this is what's very interesting if you pay careful attention you'll see scenes where where Eric Draven is walking around without a shirt and it's raining and he's like cold and he's shivering that scene is used about two or three times in you know as they advance the movie of him getting back to the apartment they digitally impose it on a different back shot so he looks like he's walking around a different environment but it's the still same exact shot now what you come to see when it's flashbacks of him seeing his girlfriend being attacked and he's kind of experiencing I guess the energy of the room now that it's a whole supernatural element the person you see on screen like writhing in pain that looks like Eric Draven he slams his body through a glass window he runs and he like jumps out of a window ledge and he holds on and he comes back in that's all a stunt double none of that is Brandon Lee None of it. But I appreciate it now because it's also done in a sequence of flashbacks that he's seeing his girlfriend being attacked. Like he's feeling her pain. And he's remembering as well what he went through. And none of it is Brandon Lee. And it was done in such a way that you really don't question it. It's very fluid. The only shot that they actually show Lee's face again is when he's pushed out of a window. And you see him falling back and you see him hit the ground. Other than that, everything else you see, anything that has to do with him not wearing a shirt, like in present time, is the stunt double. And that's where he comes to see that, you know, he cuts his hand and the and the hands heal very quickly. That's where he comes to realize that something isn't right. The film progresses. You see how the guys who murdered him and his girlfriend are just being, you know, scumbags and drinking and, you know, being obnoxious and whatever the case. It touches on a brief moment there and then it comes back to Eric in the apartment and he's looking around. And here he's sitting at what's like a makeup table. And he's just like looking through photos and things like that. And it it brings back all of the memories of love that he had with his girl. And again, this is where I credit the director. In these flashback sequences, you do see uh, Brandon Lee. You see the actress. But when the actor is sitting at the makeup table, it's all, you know, shots of behind his back and whatever the case. And then he gets angry and he punches a mirror. Smart move because the broken glass makes it easier to hide the stunt double's face. Because now you see the stunt double applying the white makeup and the song that I put in the intro, Burn, by The Cure, starts playing in the background. And you see him, you know, rubbing in white makeup and putting on black lipstick and making the the face of the meme, which is a mask that was hanging off the side of the of the makeup table. Very well done. Very well done. For the for the time back in the nineties, the limited budget, the limited special effects. It was incredibly well done. But the whole thing about it is if you look at it, like when the guy's applying the makeup, it's not Brandon Lee. But it was just done fluid. One of my favorite parts is once he 
kind of puts on the makeup. He gets up. He walks into his closet where, you know, he looks at his old guitar case where he had like, I guess, like his outfit puts on some black leather pants, of course, uh, like a spandex black T-shirt. And now he's just ready to be the crow or whatever the crow does. And there's a shot that he's walking towards the window. It's a circular window. And then you see the crow land on his shoulder. That is a fantastic shot. That is iconic. Then as he stands in front of the window, there's a lightning flash. And there they show Brandon Lee as the crow. But if you look carefully, it is a computer-imposed image of Brandon Lee's face on the stunt double's body. So that whole process, that whole evolution of Eric Draven crawling out of the, the coffin and putting on the makeup and all that other shit was a stunt double. But seamlessly done. Unless you know what you're looking for, you're just thinking, okay, well, this is the movie. I cannot express enough the tone, how how well, and this is this is why the film is is like a cult classic. The tone of it, the color of it, everything is dark, everything is depressing, everything is kind of like used. Nothing really looks new. Everything is weathered. Everything in the film, from characters, from the guy who owns the pawn shop, um, is a gentleman. He's an actor. You guys would definitely know him from many movies of the 80s and 90s. He kind of reminds me of Danny DeVito. Like if Danny DeVito had an older brother. And he also reminds me of a Greek guy who used to, used to own a diner around where we live, where we would used to go after clubs and shit to have like breakfast. Johnny, this Greek guy, hilarious. But anyway, it's a whole different story. Um, it just, you know, the way the buildings are put together, and you could tell that this is totally like a set. And you could tell that the buildings are like models. Again, very limited budget. But the tone holds up beautifully. Another thing is that this, you could tell this was influenced quite a bit by Tim Burton's Batman. Um, a lot of like jumping across rooftops. Uh, the That noir look of it, that dark noir look of it. You know, I never really, I loved the first Batman with Michael Keaton. I thought, you know, it wasn't a perfect film. I wasn't crazy about Michael Keaton being casted as Batman. But now, knowing Tim Burton as I do, Michael Keaton being cast as Bruce Wayne for Tim Burton's film was brilliant. Because it's his world, it's his vision. And now we're going to get to see that again in the new Flash movie. Here, with The Crow you could tell that Alex Proyas was definitely influenced by Tim Burton. There, there are a lot of subtleties to it. You'll know as you watch the film. And that's another thing. People were excited about this movie because this was during a time where comic book movies weren't what they are now. You got maybe one comic book movie every two years, two if you were lucky, because this movie came out this movie came out in 94 right so look at it this way superman with christopher reeve came out in 1978 superman 2 came out in 1980 or 81 superman 3 came out in 83 and unfortunately superman 4 came out in 87 
Nothing else. No Spider-Man, no The Flash, nothing. And unfortunately, after Superman 2, those films got progressively worse. They were terrible. Until 1989, where Tim Burton changed everything with Batman. After 89, Batman Returns came out in 92. Again, nothing in terms of a superhero film. So we're coming close to almost 10 years of not seeing another superhero that wasn't Batman or Superman that we hadn't seen already. There wasn't enough technology to bring forth Spider-Man, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the X-Men, none of it. Instead, we got old, cheesy 70s or 80s TV shows. You know, the Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno and that horrible wig. But I love the show, so I'm not going to talk shit. So in 94, when this came out based on a comic book movie, people were excited. But the thing with The Crow is that he wasn't Superman or he wasn't Batman. There was a lot of adult theme to it. There was use and depiction of drugs. There was murder. Like, he he wasn't Batman. He didn't have restraint. Like, he was on a, on a mission of vengeance, and he was going to kill people, the people who murdered him and his girl. So it was a very hard sell. I think Paramount picked it up, and then when Brandon Lee died, Paramount backed out, and then Miramax picked it up. So it was kind of not marketed as a comic book movie because of all the adult themes. So you didn't want kids to see this walking into this thinking that the crow is going to do some cool karate shit and he doesn't. Instead, he stabs a guy to death with his own knives. You know what I mean? That's the kind of movie it was. And I particularly remember too leaving the theater after seeing it. I remember there were quite a few people saying, oh, man, that movie was bullshit. He didn't do no karate. Literally, somebody said that. And it it goes to show that people were walking in there with the expectation that he was going to be like his dad. And he wasn't. So this is one of the 90s, 90s movies you could ever want to see. And it would be this. Wesley Snipes Blade, which changed everything for Marvel. And then another movie called Spawn which is based on a character by Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane was a, or is a legendary artist who had a very long run on Spider-Man and a limited run on the Incredible Hulk with Marvel. And his artwork of Spider-Man is considered definitive by a lot of people. And I believe he's also responsible for the creation of Venom. So that was pretty much the 90s. That's those, those were the superhero movies of the 90s. Spawn, The Crow... And what else did I say? Blade. Blade would be the one that came out later into the 90s, like I think 97 or 98. Then in 2000, we got X-Men. Then in 2002, we got Spider-Man. And here we are. So given the, you know, the difficulty of trying to promote this as a comic book film, when there's sex, drugs, rock and roll, murder... It was a bit of a task, but people came out in droves to see it because it was Brandon Lee's last performance. You know, it was the last thing he would ever do, literally, and it was heartbreaking. Uh, A lot also, you know, the movie is, it has pauses in terms of action. It's not an action movie that is consistent throughout, but there are certain scenes that 
action does come into play. You know, the cast of characters as well. If you look at some of the actors in this film, you'll recognize them from other movies. For example, Ernie Hudson uh, plays the officer that Eric Draven befriends because he's the officer that came to the house and witnessed the murder afterwards. Ernie Hudson is known throughout the world for the film Ghostbusters. He played uh, Winston, the only <laughs> the only African-American Ghostbuster. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it was a phenomenal movie, family movie. I mean, I, I absolutely love Ghostbusters. He's in this film. Uh, the actor who plays Candyman in the 90s films, he's in this as well. Um, you'll, you'll know when you see them. They'll be, you know, they'll be familiar in one sense or another. Uh, so there's that aspect to the film. Now, as for the action sequences, one in particular, I think the one that stands out the most is the action sequence where, because little by little, Eric Draven's character begins to eliminate the guys that are responsible for raping and murdering his girlfriend and killing him as well. The way he dispatches some of them is kind of hilarious and at the same time pretty brutal. And this again comes into play with one character in particular called T-Bird, uh, who he straps to his card, which is a T-Bird, ironically, and blows it up and has it drive off into a river. When he does this, the crow, or Eric Draven, takes lighter fluid and he, he pours it on the floor and then he lights a match, another iconic moment of the film. And when the lighter ignites, it, it burns the image of a crow into the ground. Later on, we would see, as, as I said, that the crow took from Tim Burton's world of Batman in terms of the darkness and, and the, that noir feel to it, in The Dark Knight Rises, Batman burns the Bat logo on the Brooklyn Bridge. So they kind of took one from another. You know, it's a genre where they kind of nod back at one another out of respect. Uh, but that being said, the final kind of the, the big action sequence comes when the main protagonist... Uh, is a really interesting looking character who dresses like, I don't know, like a Shakespearean or, a, I don't know, like a gothic Shakespearean warlord. He has this long, straight, it's a total weave, but he has this long, straight black hair and he's wearing, he wears like these, you know, fitted black trousers with these black riding boots and he dispatches people with like a sword. He has some weird kind of relationship with his sister who's played by, I believe her name is uh, Bai Ling. She was an Asian actress who had notoriety for a lot of like really weird 90s films. I think she had a brief like cameo in a Star Wars film, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, um, it's just, it's unique. This film is unique in a lot of ways. And the main protagonist is having this meeting with like all of the warlords and drug dealers because... He was pretty much the one that started all the riots throughout the city the night before Halloween. You know, uh, causing riots, burning, you know, murdering people, all this shit. 
I, I forgot what they call it. Uh, uh, I think they call it Death Knight or something like that. And he has them all together. He's like, we need to cause more carnage. We need to, you know, raise more hell. You know, I have people imitating what I'm doing. You know, we need to raise hell and this and that. And all of the drug dealers are like, you know, yeah, whatever the case, you know, the criminals or what have you. And then Brandon Lee walks in. And he sits at the edge of the table. And he kind of like faces off with all of them. They all stand up and pretty much unload all of their weapons into him. Now, it's a miracle Brandon Lee wasn't killed there, but with so many guns being shot at him, and you see, like, what they call the squibs, the little, uh, I guess sometimes they've even been condoms back in the days. Like, that's the most generic way they did it. They would fill, uh, fill a condom with fake blood, and then they would attach a device to it, then they would press a button, and it would explode, so it looked like you were getting shot. So you would see the squibs, you know, jump off of Brandon Lee. You see like his hair going up from the impact of the bullets. And then he just fell off the table. And then after that, when one guy walks over to see, you know, if he's dead or not, all hell breaks loose. And that's the action sequence. And here, you could tell that this movie also took from John Woo in terms of its action. John Woo is known for really stylized, ultra-violent Hong Kong action films, hard-boiled, A Better Tomorrow, A Better Tomorrow 2, um, and it's mostly like Chinese mafia, gangster action films. And they were pretty amazing back in the 90s, but one of the things about these films is the gun violence, man, it was just unbelievable. Like, it was just... Bah, 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 bah. Like, you would see guys double-fisting, a you know... a one had a nine millimeter in one hand, and then the other in the other hand he had like an Uzi, and it's just brrr, it was crazy shit, crazy crazy shit. Ultimately, this would very much take from that style, as would even Tom Cruise when Tom Cruise did Mission Impossible. I think it's two. John Woo directed that, and John Woo also had a knack for like the slow motion trench coat gun pullout that the matrix would ultimately be influenced with as well so that's the main action sequence in this film it's really just energetic and kind of crazy but it's the action sequences that i like because as i've said i i often hate when american directors have a tendency of doing action shots that are so fucking tight you don't know what's going on here, everything is spaced out. So you see him like kick people out a window and do a backflip and, you know, shoot somebody and all this crazy shit. So it's action, but it's like entertainment. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, you're being entertained. I, I don't know where this tight shooting shit came from, but I've voiced it many times. It's, it's happened with like Black Widow, Batman Begins. Even though Black Widow as a movie progressed, they, I think they kind of figured it out. And they, you know, they kind of backed up. But here, it, it, the guys definitely knew what they were doing in terms of the action sequences. Then the film progresses that the main baddie gets away. Uh, Brandon Lee is trying to outrun the police. There, you know, as he comes to the end of a road, about to be cornered, Ernie Hudson's character, the cop who knows him, you know, tells him, get in the car drives him off and then Brandon Lee jumps out halfway through and he escapes the film progresses it appears that if I'm not mistaken even though he is resurrected he has a certain amount of time 
to wrong or to right whatever wrongs he has been through. Like the crow gives him a certain amount of time. So it's not like he'll be alive. Well, not alive, but it's not like he'll be reanimated forever. If he doesn't do what he needs to do, his body will begin to slow down again and ultimately he'll die again. So you could tell that he's slowing down as the movie progresses into its final act. There's a little girl throughout the film that at the very beginning she befriended Brandon Lee and his girlfriend Shelly. Like, you know, she kind of plays a supplemental character. She misses them. You know, she's heartbroken by the tragedy of how they died. And, you know, she plays an elemental character that ultimately is a side story of her getting kidnapped and now Eric Draving having to go and to save her. He was unaware that this warlord was the one responsible for causing the murder of him and his girlfriend. He just thought that this guy was like this crime boss. At the end of the film, when they have their final duel, and again, a side note, another shot, another shout out, better said, to uh, Tim Burton. There's a really beautiful scene where Brandon Lee is walking into a church and he opens the church doors. And that is a straight up shout out to Batman 1989 where Michael Keaton has to walk into a church as Batman because the Joker is taking Kim Basinger all the way up to the top of the belt. It's practically shot for shot, the same shit. And it works both times. You know, I like to see those little nods of appreciation of the art. So Brandon goes to the top of the church where him and the, and the main bad guy are fighting you know, he's trying to save the little girl that's been kidnapped. It appears that during the conflict, one of the main bad guy's henchmen shoots the crow and wounds it. Therefore, Eric Draven is now hurt because apparently of the supernatural connection that the bird has with him. So it kind of slows him down, making it easier for the main villain to kind of have his way with him. He ends up sta uh, stabbing Eric Draven with a sword. Again, this guy has a thing for swords. I don't know what it is. Very like, uh, how can I say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not poetic. Uh, well, whatever. When it comes to me, I'll let you know. But anyway, he has like this very sophisticated, old school, old world, 18th century, like Christopher Lee motif going on. Um, but he stabs Eric Draven and Eric collapses and, you know, he's about to die. And the guy goes over to him. He's like, I don't know, you know, what the hell brought you to me. I don't know what your beef is, but, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's done. You're done. And then I believe Eric Draven tells him, you know, you murdered me and my girlfriend or whatever the case. And he's like, oh, that's right. He's like, you know what? He's like, nothing happens in this town without my say-so. He's like, but it is what it is. He's like, if it's any consolation, I am going to miss you. And at that point, when Eric Draven now knows that this guy is responsible for his death and for the death of his girlfriend who held on for, I think, 30 hours before she died, he could feel that pain. And one of the reasons why Eric Draven felt that pain is because the police officer, Ernie Hudson, told him when they have a conversation, he's like, I, he's like, I stayed with her and she lasted for 30 hours. And then Eric Draven tells him, 
you were with her the whole time? He's like, yeah, she held on. At that point, he kind of grabs his face and he transfers what he saw. And then he feels what she felt. So now he carries that pain with him. Being stabbed and almost about to die again, he now reaches out and he grabs the villain and he goes, I have something for you. 30 hours of pain, all in one shot, all for you. So that's more or less how he defeats the main protagonist of the movie. The guy falls to his death. He's impaled on a gargoyle, um, which is awesome because the whole throughout the whole city, this whole movie, they should have called this movie Rain. The whole fucking thing. It's like a, a torrential storm that just doesn't go away throughout the whole film. So as these guys are fighting, but again, it suits it suits the film brilliantly, at least for <clears throat> excuse me, the cinematic purposes of it. When this guy falls to his death, the gargoyle is is like pouring water out of its mouth. When he lands on the gargoyle and he's impaled. Now blood is coming out of the mouth. It's a really funky, funky illustration. It was a great shot. It looked amazing for the movie. Knowing that and knowing that he has now righted a wrong that was done to him and the crow came back, you know, the crow came because the crow had seen the injustice that was done to him and brought him back. It's the whole premise of this series, I guess. He can now go back to the world of the dead. And it's beautifully shot because he returns to his girlfriend's headstone. He's tired. You could tell that he's, you know, he says it at one point, he's like, I'm coming home, Shelly. And as he has his head on the headstone, you see the actress who played his girlfriend come out. She's dressed in white. She looks beautiful. She looks vibrant. She looks healthy, like she's at peace and she's coming to take him home. And then the movie ends. Simplistic to say the least, wasn't overcomplicated. The pacing was good. I mean, I rewatched it uh, prior to doing this podcast. You know, there are a lot of scenes where, you know, you look at Brandon Lee, who's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful human being, good-looking guy, charismatic. You know, there are some funny parts in the film, some dialogue that is kind of funny. Uh, particularly when he kills the guy, fun boy, who's shooting heroin with his girlfriend. Um, it was just well done. It was really, really well done. And it's a shame that ultimately it would cost Brandon Lee his life. You know, and Brandon Lee would never see the success or the cult status that this film would have. You know, I, I really wonder where he would have been and not only him but his dad now unfortunately there were sequels to this film oh that were absolutely terrible i think the immediate sequel to this film was called the crow city of angels and the way they tried to sell it was that another couple is wronged in a similar way and then the crow comes back and it brings that boyfriend back to life and you know he does kind of the same things or whatever the case so everybody was really hyped about that like oh shit there's a sequel nobody really knew what was going on but there was i think the actor was like spanish or something the lead actor was spanish so us latinos were hype we're like holy shit you know there's a latino who's gonna be the crow this is gonna be great 
I think one of the girls, one of the Asian girl back in the day who played the yellow Power Ranger, she was in this movie like as a villain or something. Oh my God. I, re- I recommend you guys watch Paint Dry before you watch Crow City of Angels. It was absolute shit. Then I think they did a third version with the kid from Terminator 2 um, and Kirsten Dunst. And then they did a fourth film. Then they did a TV show. The TV show was, eh, it was there. I think the TV show kind of circled back and tried to, to do or expand more on the Brandon Lee version. And it was okay. I remember seeing a couple of episodes, but then that was it. I think it got canceled. But by far and away, if you are interested in the whole premise of this character, my recommendation to you is to read the graphic novel first. It's a great story, very entertaining, beautiful, beautiful artwork, honestly. And then watch the film, if only for... Brandon Lee's performance to see how young and vibrant he was. And honestly, I mean, he even, there are certain parts that I look at him here and he looks like he could have been a Joker as well. Like there's a lot of resemblance between what Joaquin Phoenix did for Joker and Brandon Lee's face. Could be the makeup, could be the facial structure, could be the jawline. I have no idea. But I'm sure without a doubt, Brandon and or his father would have had huge contributions to make in what is now the cinematic world of comic book heroes. You know, he could have played Robin. He could have played Nightwing. Who knows? Who knows? Because he's in, he, even though he is of Asian descent, his features are more Anglo. He looks more American, you know, and he's, he was a good looking kid, man. It's a fucking shame, but his legacy forever remains with the crow. So if you guys want to see it i hope this podcast has been insightful in some way you know the soundtrack kicked ass man i remember back in the 90s when we were hanging out you know in like each other's houses and shit like that soundtrack would always be on in the background i think i burned out my cassette from rewinding and forwarding certain songs on that thing so when i got the cd oh man it was like party time (laughs) because now i could just listen to any song i wanted like that's how far back it went but it was a good time all around. I have very good memories, even meeting the actor himself, which is a standout. I have very good memories of the whole culmination of this film, with the exception of the tragedy. He looked beautiful. He looked the part. He played it well. You know, he inspired, you know, every every male between the ages of like 17 and like, 32 to dress as the crow for Halloween that year, man. I'm serious. Google Halloween 1994 and see how many people were dressed as the crow if you don't believe me. Even girls. Girls were dressing as it. It was it was pretty hot. It was pretty cool. So that's it, guys. If uh, you know, if I had to give it a rating, I would definitely give it a very, very strong three stars, even three and a half, because of uh what Brandon Lee did with this film. It's a total 90s film. You know, it's it's a, it's a character of itself. You know, the whole setup, the whole cinematography, all of it, all of it, the soundtrack, everything. It's a great 90s film. It's a great, you know, superhero film in its own right. A superhero noir, if I can call it that. An anti-hero, 
maybe better said because as i'm saying this i'm watching him about to kill a guy with a needleful arrow and so i don't think that's some shit batman would do so this dude is definitely an anti-hero but again it's all about vengeance and righting the wrong that was done to him by supernatural means of being bought back by a crow so brandon lee the crow 1994 three stars my friend well done so that's uh that's pretty much my time guys I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was insightful. Definitely check the movie out. Um, Had a trailer drop today for the Disney Plus show, The Expansion of the Mandalorian. There's now a TV show called The Book of Boba Fett. Based on the character Boba Fett from Star Wars, primarily The Empire Strikes Back. Check it out if you guys can. Just Google uh, Book of Boba Fett trailer. You'll see what's coming up. If you guys enjoyed The Mandalorian, I think this is definitely going to be a phenomenal expansion on that. And that's it. And also, this is going to be my last episode for season two. Yeah, because it's about that time. I think I, I think I need to go on to a season three, right? Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to focus on that. There are uh, quite a few films I have not caught up on, in particular the first part of Dune, uh, the James Bond film, which I'm really excited to watch, No Time to Die, because it's Daniel Craig's last. And I've been wanting to do a, um, a superhero showcase on James Bond. And even though he's not technically a superhero, cinematically in many ways he was. My dad was a huge James Bond fan, particularly that of Sean Connery. Uh, and he kind of handed that down to me. My dad loved the style of it, the music, of course, the women and, and how glamorous and beautiful they were. So that's who knows. That may be the first episode of season three. So, guys, as always, I thank you for joining me. Thank you for sticking through with me for two seasons, man. I can't believe I've gone on this long. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. You know, good times ahead, good energy to you all. If you're getting home, get home safe. If you're on your way to work, have a fantastic day. Don't let people break you down. <laughs> have a drink after your shift. And I will see you for the first episode of Season 3 for Heroes Retreat with Noel Cruz. Thank you guys so much. Love you all. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.